We're doing this series on prayer, and so um, let me, if I can, just review that way if you missed a little bit, um, and then we'll, we'll launch into today's topic. Um, I, did a, I did a week to sort of set the series up talking about where, where God's address is, right? So where, where does God live? And um, what I was trying to explain, whether I did a good job or not, I was trying to explain this. God does not live in one special place. God doesn't live in a temple. God doesn't live in a building. God doesn't live in building C. He didn't live in the temple back in the day. That What happened when the veil was torn in the, in the scripture was it showed that God was not there. And the, that Paul and Stephen and so many others were going on to teach this. Um, in Acts chapter 17, Paul explained it to the crowd that was gathered in, in Athens um, that God doesn't live in temples built by human hands, right? And that God is the one who made it all. And so how would he ever fit in a box? And this was echoing, this was echoing the prophet Isaiah, right? So God doesn't live in a certain place. Um, now let me just say something. Some of you would say, well, why do I feel special when I come here? Right or maybe maybe you feel moved in a certain way when you go. We just had a ladies' retreat and they were all talking about how special it was. And I actually talked to them about that. And it's not. This is so important. To please listen. It's not because God is here in a special way. It's because you've allowed yourself to focus on God in a way that you don't in your ordinary life. Does that make sense? And then as you mature. As a believer, as you mature, you will learn to be able to focus and connect with God as you're driving down the freeway. You will learn to be able to do dishes or diapers. That's coming my way soon, right? So ask me in a few months. But you will learn that you don't have to be in a special place. And this is what it, to me, what it really means to mature as a follower is you don't need a special place. Now, we all need to, I I think we all need these moments where we set time aside. Jesus called it a prayer closet, right? Perhaps this Sunday morning gathering is one of those closets where you tune things out, the distractions. I mean, how many of you wake up and you have 800 things to do and you just, you spend the first part of the day just trying to figure out which one you should attack first. And as soon as you get it planned, somebody else takes over and you're not doing that anyway. This is life. And so it's this, it's this ability to, so we talked about, it's not us trying to get closer to God as much as it is us trying to be aware of how close God is to us. And this was the bombshell. We talked for a while in that first week about how important the temple was to the Jewish culture that Jesus was raised in as a young Jewish man himself. And then they go on to say, Paul goes on to say in his writings, you are the what? Temple. That was a loaded... I I can't do justice to how big that phrase was, right? It would be like me saying, you are the Pentagon and the White House and the Supreme Court and, and, uh, and uh, the Vatican. You're the Vatican. 
You are where God dwells. You are where the residence of power is. And I don't think, I've heard that verse quoted so many times that there are Christians talking about it. It's usually something to do with when them, they're going to start eating better and going to the gym. <laughs> Got to take care of the temple, you know. And it's, it is, it's become very cliche. And it's unfortunate because when that was first written, that was a bombshell. That was blasphemy. That was unthinkable. God dwells here. So for us, the, 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 the reach is the mental journey that we have to take, and all of us take it because we sort of think of God in magical or mythical kind of ways, that he's in a certain building somewhere. And, and, and what, what Jesus came and Paul, they started to reveal to us is that, no, God is not in special places. God is everywhere. And he goes on to say that he, in Acts 17, verse 27, Paul's in his speech, and he goes on to say, though he is not far from any one of us. Look here. God is not far. Say it together. One, two, three. Not far. He's close. But we learned this prayer, uh, many of us as children, to pray our Father, ready, who art where? The first thing that we've, this, what a disservice, the way this was brought to so many of us. Because what does that first phrase do to us? Who art in heaven, right? What do we do? Mentally, like he's, now however far we projected heaven to be away from us, we believe it's a, what? It's a long way from here. It's, you know, um, it's, and I, I was at a funeral this week for my grandma's sister, and you know it was very traditional and it's good. So much of it was good because I love tra- tradition, and there's some of it that needs a little tweaking in my humble estimation, right? But the person was talking and talking about how we're going to love being on those streets of gold, and I'm just not there. Now, if you're going to love it, good. You can have that, but I don't want to walk around on streets of gold forever. I'm going for metaphor. You can go for what you want. But I, streets paved of gold, actual streets paved of gold, does nothing for me personally. But here's the thing. We have this vision that it's some far, far away place and God is on this throne and he's just looking down on us and frowning. And this is the word actually who is in the heavens. Go look up any legitimate, like literal translation and they know the word means the heavens. What is the heavens? Right here. So the Jewish culture in those days, what they knew is the heavens were, it was... Above, it was beneath, it was beside, it was the air around you. And now, if I said that prayer, God who is in the heavens or who's in the atmosphere, right? God who is in the air around me, God who is in the seat next to me, all of a sudden, this is a, isn't this a completely different mental journey? And what we're trying to teach is that. God is not some remote being who has to be accessed with magical words. By the way, then last week we talked about this. God um, and accessing God with prayer is not about magical formulas. You know, if you say the right words, if you get the right stuff, then you get your prayers answered. And if you don't say the right stuff, You don't get your prayers answered. But prayer has to be much more mysterious than that. A lot of us have prayed for things that have not come true. And truth be told, we asked for good things. Isn't it true? It wasn't like I was just asking to win the lottery. A couple of you shouted that out this week. But 
It wasn't you were just asking for that, but you really asked, God, could you please heal this person? Could you please do... And your prayer wasn't answered. If you live long enough, you just know that this is true. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So it has to be more mysterious. Prayer has to be more than us just trying to get God to do our stuff. But us entering into relationship with God and letting God... Are you ready for this? Change us as much as change our circumstances. I know, God forbid, I know you don't need to change. Everyone else around you needs to change. How many got this? It's, it's the people around me that need I don't need to change. It's the people around me need to... Isn't this true? We want people around us to change. To, God, fix all the idiots around me, please. And our prayers, if we don't realize them when we're starting, are very centered around this. And so Jesus comes and teaches us this prayer... Um, models it really in the garden where he says, uh, this is what I want. I don't want to suffer. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So prayer, this is what I want you to think of. Prayer is not just something that you do to get what you want in life. Prayer is much deeper than that, but it could be seen as an alternate lifestyle altogether. Alternate to what? Alternate to the, the human lifestyle of getting what you want. Think about it. Most of us, from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, we think about getting what we want. And we can, we can squeeze in a little unselfishness there because we want it for our kids or we want it for, right? But at the end of the day, we want it for our kids because we want it what? For us, because it makes us feel better. And so prayer, if, if we're going to grow in this area, who would go... I'm going to grow just a smidge this year, just a smidgen, all right? If we're going to grow, it's got to be about not just us talking God into what we want, because that's just more control. Follow this link together. Control and anger. Follow the link. Control and anger. What do you mean? Well, when you don't get what you want... What's the rollover? Anger. The other one is control and judging. I want to try to get you to do what I want. So I use techniques, anger and judgment. It's not an accident. By the way, it's not an accident. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, we tend to pull out little clips, right? Special clips like this, and they're nice. They're little verses you can pull out separated. But if you read the whole thing and you think that there was a, a unifying message in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and 7, uh, 5, 6, and 7, and they're linked because Jesus rolls from prayer and contrasts with judgment and anger. Say, Chris, I wanted to, I'm so disappointed in this series because I wanted you to tell me how I could pray better so I could get the stuff that I want. And I'm so upset at you. And I, I get it, right? Because, but that's not what Jesus taught. He puts prayer, read it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's contrasted with judgment and anger. Why? Because those two things are handles that we use to control or to get what we want. And the idea is you're not here to get what you want. You're here, right, to let God change you. Change you. 
That's actually the opposite of control. That is what? Surrender. It's kind of the, our last resort. It's sort of the last thing. You, know, you fight, you claw, you grab, and then finally you surrender. So today what I want to talk about is when we pray, not just where God is, but who God is. You, when you pray, have some kind of a mental image. And we've talked on this subject before over the years. I brought my surfing Santa up here, right? Some people think of God as like a Santa Claus. Some people think of him as a cop, you know? He's just kind of up there, upset, you know, waiting for you to break a rule so he can write you a ticket or a violation. And Jesus comes along and says, when you pray, you should say our what? Our father. Now, a father is completely different from most common ideas of prayer. Most common ideas of prayer um, people have are God is some sort of uh, like um, a judge. Probably the most common one I hear is God is a judge. He's going to judge you. And this is his common idea. And if, God, if God's primary deal is to judge you, think about this. I want you to contrast it with what Jesus taught us about prayer I'm going to dive into. I want to share this with you. Jesus brought something new. Jesus brought something new. And our problem is some of us are still holding on. We're at the bleed over of the old. And Jesus comes and he says, here, maybe this is a good way to think of it. If you, right, Matthew 7, 11, though you are evil, right, know how to give good gifts to your children. Everyone look here, all right? Who wants good for their kids? You just, I want good for them. I just want good. Have you ever given, given, actually given them things? Like I, I, are you kidding me? Somebody's like, tell me when the ride ends, please. I, know, I want to know when the ride ends, right? You give them. You give them. Now, how many have ever given them good things? What? What are you doing? How many have ever spent more than you should have? Look around. Look at, look at these stupid people here. Ready? I'm not even done. How many have ever spent way more than you should have? Look at these. What's wrong with you people? Is there something wrong with you? Of course, he's using hyperbole and metaphors to say you're evil, but he's saying, look, this is, though you, he goes, you do good things for your kids. You think about your kids. You want the best for them. You, you, you worry about them. You, ready for this? How much more? Let's say it together. Ready? How much more? One more time. How much more? It's God is not best thought of as a judge or a cop or a Santa Claus. God is best thought of as a loving parent. A parent who loves infinitely more than you can. Here's the exercise I want you to do today. I want you to think of the best thoughts you've ever thought of, of and for your children if you have them. Um, by God's grace, I have one on the way. I'm already 
thinking about that child already. What, what's wrong? I, like painting rooms and doing all kinds of, what? What are you doing all this for? Because your, your thoughts, your natural thought is to make sure, make sure, take care, give good. Is it right? We cannot, look here, we cannot accept any image of God that is any less than our most loving thoughts to our own kids. We can't accept that anymore. Because of Jesus, we don't need to accept that anymore. In fact, what he says is, how much more does God love you? How much more does God want good for you? How much more? Let's put that scripture back up there. Will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? You say, see, Chris, but there it is. We're supposed to be getting a lot of good stuff coming our way, all right? So the, the, as they say, the devil's in the details, all right? So let's just talk about this for a minute. Now, I want to, b- before we talk about the gifts that God gives us or doesn't give us and how he gives them, let me say something about the image that you and I have of God. First of all, it often reflects what we were taught, how we were brought up. You know, you're just given these, these pictures, these pictures in our head. And your image of God affects you deeply. A.W. Tozer said, whatever comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. Whatever comes into your mind. Some people have said, think about this, we should stop using the word God for a generation so we can reclaim the idea of God. But the idea is this. You, everybody has an image, something that you think of. And isn't it true that our cliches in society, I'm, I'll be out there in the lobby talking or I'll be at Starbucks and someone will talk to me and then they'll, they'll throw this phrase and you've heard it, you've, some of you have used it. Um, well, you know, I talked to the man upstairs. I, huh? Right? I talked to the man upstairs, or it depends on the man upstairs. And the idea is, right, that God is male, probably with a beard, and he's, he's up, he's far away, right? By the way, did you see uh, Talladega Nights, when the guy's praying, he, he says, and they do the family prayer, he has to pray, I mean, you know, Will Ferrell, I mean, he's praying to is it nine pounds, seven ounce baby Jesus, right? With your fleece diapers. And he want, that's his image and everybody's critiquing his image. And he says, no, this is the image of God that I like. You know, you can pray to adult Jesus if you want to. I'm praying to little infant baby Jesus and the fleece diapers, right? Now, think about this. Everybody has an image. An image comes to your mind. And whatever comes to your mind not only affects you, but I'm going to say this it probably reflects you. I meet some guys and their image of God is like grumpy old man. And then I look back at him and I go, hmm, you think God's a grumpy old man. What most people realize is this, we sort of become what we worship. And your image of God, if it's, by the way, Paul Young, who's been here with Orchard Grove at least twice, maybe three times, I'm trying to remember, and wrote the book The Shack, 
He did America a phenomenal favor, a phenomenal favor, by opening our eyes that the, the, these, all these are metaphors, right? Father, there's so many metaphors, shepherd, right? In, in Isaiah, mother. So there's all these metaphors for God. We, they're, they're, none of them are exact. They're metaphors. But when he made the Heavenly Father uh, an African-American woman, right? So that we could tear down these old constructs that we had of what God is like. God is far different than any of us. But here's the beauty of it. The essence of God, the essence of God could be boiled down, as Jesus said, of a loving parent who gives good gifts no matter how much you think of your children. God loves you infinitely more. Um, Those children who you bought all those things for, did they always steward them carefully and thank you appropriately? Huh? Did they steward them carefully and thank you appropriately? No, the hands are not flying up as fast as they were before. Well, no. And there were times you were disappointed at what they did with the, with the gift that was given. Is this true? And the same thing would be true of us. We don't always do the right stuff with the stuff that God gives us. You ready? Just embarrass yourself in front of all your friends. How many after that you still gave them more? Put your hand. I'll close my eyes so I don't have to look, right? Yeah, he's like, what's wrong with you? It's just, there's, <laughs> some of you are like, I know, what is wrong with me? Because y- your heart is connected to them. And it, ready? And it cannot be disconnected. It can't be. God, God's heart is connected to your heart and it cannot be disconnected. He can't stop loving you. He won't stop loving you. You are his. As it says in the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and he is mine. This doesn't stop. So you can think of whatever image you want to, but perhaps we need some better images to come to our mind. And the, and the, the net result is this. If you can come away and understand that God is always and only for you. Always and only for you. Jesus said this way. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Right? We have all these jokes about uh, you're going to get coal for Christmas in your stocking. But the reality is... No, we, you, and, and you, you, don't have an inf, you don't play jokes on your infant baby, right? You, you give them what they need. Now, I want to talk for a little bit because right away the, the flags are going up, the questions are going up. Yeah, but I asked God for this and I didn't get it. I asked for this. So let's just talk about that. And we have, we're going to do a whole week on when God says no. But let me just say this. Your children ask you for things all the time. And often, as much as you've said yes, you've often said what? No. And what, what they felt like, they felt like you were giving them a stone, right? They asked for this and you gave them that. And they felt that way and they expressed it and they talked about it and they reiterated their disappointment in your decisions, right? And often it can feel like you're getting a stone. You're getting a raw deal. 
And here's a couple of things I want you to, to think about. God only wants good for you. I love the scripture from Jeremiah 29. It says, I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans that are good to prosper you, not to harm you. So God, God has a good desire for you. God has a good desire for me. And he wants what is good. But life doesn't always go the way that we want it to go. We pray that things don't happen the way that we want them to. And then God has other people involved. Think about this. God has other people than just you. Right? How many, how many families here you have more than one child? More than one child. All right? Now, I know this probably never happened in your house, but let's just say on a wild chance, one of the children took something of the others. Just in a wild flyer, just to see if I'm connecting with anybody. How does this work? One person goes into the other's room, borrows their makeup, takes their shirt, wears it to school, gets grass stains on it, these kinds of things. No? What's wrong with you as a parent? Aren't you messed up? Isn't that how they make you feel? Right away, it's your responsibility to make sure one person doesn't take from the other. And how many have learned this? That's not going to happen. That if they want to take something of the other person's, now you can set rules, you can set consequences. How many know some of your kids, and you know, you, it worked for child one, and child two said, no, I don't care about your consequences. Anybody? Like you had child one, and they, oh, okay, those are the consequences. Well, I'll never do that again. And then number two came. Like, we can bring that consequence every week. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to go take a shirt anytime I want to take it. Unless you put handcuffs on me and lead me around the house, right? And so you, you are not going to do that. You have to allow them to have their own, what? Free will and to do things. You try to coach and encourage and threaten and whatever other techniques you use. And at the end of the day, what? They do what they want to do. Is it right? And if they infringe on their brother or their sister, it happens. Now you have a choice, right? You have to figure out, has anybody been here before? How do I keep this one encouraged? How do I discipline, correct, change, alter? Is anybody with me? And make them all happy and that I love them. And then you, you go to bed just feeling like a failure. <laughs> this is right. How does it work? God doesn't micromanage your life. And sometimes you hurt your brother. You hurt your sister. You take from somebody. You take their parking spot. You cut them off on the freeway. You, and this all happens. Remember the story of Joseph? His brothers took from him because they were jealous of him. And they, they sell him. They were going to kill him. And then they end up selling him as a slave at the last minute. And it was all, I mean, it was horrible. Think about this. And Joseph went through one trial after another, after another, after another. And then when the whole story ends, at the end of the story, as they say, what goes around, comes around. Joseph's brothers find themselves before him begging for food, not knowing who he is. And Joseph reveals himself to them. 
and they're mortified, they're terrified. This is, the, this is our younger brother who we sold as a slave. And he tells them, you know, don't worry. And they start making up stories about what dad said and all that kind of thing. And he's like, look, guys, you intended to harm me. What you intended for evil, listen carefully, God turned for good. Joseph didn't say, God spared me, because people are always like, God's going to protect me from anything bad ever happening. It's just not always the story. Sometimes you have a brother or you have a sister, and they, in, the, in the, the freedom that people have, his brothers did intend evil for him. He says, but what God did is he turned it for good. Somehow God knows how to, in those late nights when you're sitting there trying to figure out how to solve this problem with this child and this one, and God knows how to turn it for good. They were sold, he was sold as a slave. He goes to Egypt. He ends up being second to Pharaoh. He ends up in a place of prominence where he can now bless and help his brothers. Don't worry. You meant for evil. God turned. It's the turning that God does. Some of you are in the gap. What's the gap? The gap is between when evil was done to you and God turning it into good. That's where the doubt and the difficulty comes in. That's the whole story of Scripture, one after another after another. In Romans, Paul wrote it this way, all things work together, or God works them together. Or could I say it this way? God weaves them together. This thing happened, and this thing happened, and this doesn't make any sense, and that doesn't make any sense. And God masterfully just keeps taking these circumstances, these things that happen in our life, and just keeps weaving them together until he makes some beautiful tapestry. Your life, your life is a work of art. Listen, and all these things that are happening to you that don't make sense, right? God keeps weaving them together. The other day we were moving this piece of art that Vicky and I made. It hangs in our uh, dining room there. And it's made out of uh, old dock wood. And when I first got this, bought this old cottage, um, they left the dock there and it was sitting in the weeds. And, you know, the weeds were growing up around it. And it's this old, just nasty dock. And it's way past its years that would, you know, splinters coming out of it everywhere, and you couldn't use it, you couldn't reuse it, it wouldn't be safe, uh, and uh, so I kept thinking, what could I do with that? And for, and for years, I had these, all these walls, and um, I would go to look for artwork, and I just, I didn't like anything. I mean, I'd look everywhere for artwork, and I'm like, nah, because you buy this, and then you're committed. You know, you buy a picture of New York City, and then you're like always in New York City. No offense if that's what you have. All right, you buy a bridge of Sam, now you're always in Sam. And I just, I couldn't, I, so for years I just had blank walls, right? And so um, Vicky and I got together, we took this dock all apart, right? And then we reassembled it, put it on some wood, put a rope light behind it, and stuck it on the wall, and it reflects, right? And everybody that come in our house go, where did you get that? Where did you get that? Like, we made it. Out of what? Right? It's like a bunch of junk that was laying in the yard, with weeds growing on it. Some of you, this is what you're obsessed with. 
the weeds and the junk and the laying in the yard and the old and the deteriorating. And you're like, this is not the way my life's supposed to go. But you just have to get an artist's touch and all of a sudden it's used for a completely different purpose than you thought. Are you with me? We get stuck thinking, that I'm supposed to be a doc. I'm supposed to be a doc. And maybe you were a doc for 10 years. You know, maybe you were a doc for 20 years. But maybe God is going to reuse, repurpose your life in a way that you never thought was imaginable. God works together for the good. Are you with me? God always wants the good. But you're going to go through life and it's going to have bumps and bruises and people and circumstances and situations. And you're going to go through all that. And we're going to pray that God protects you, of course. But the reality is you're going to bump into a lot of stuff. What we hold on to is this. God weaves them and works them for good. You're a beautiful piece of art in the making. And right now, your phase, get it? You know what makes that piece of art so beautiful? Weathered wood. It's this gray weathered wood. You might just be in the weathering stage. How exciting is that? The only thing is like you're getting older and the weeds are growing up. But what's going on underneath? This is so important. Beauty's being created. The beauty of your heart becoming softer, more wonderful. I was with my grandma, she's 95. And everybody was saying, listen, they were saying, you know, some people when they get older, they get crabbier and meaner. Your grandma is so sweet. What do you want to be of you? Ninety-five, telling so many great stories, reliving so many great days. Let the weathering process bring out the beauty inside of you.